This is the Phelan and Myers 2 for 20 with the Willett, Phelan, Myers and Rotts Wealth Management Group of Jannie Montgomery Scott. Jannie, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and the New York Stock Exchange, maintains a presence in Duluth with their office at 6340 Sugarloaf Parkway, Suite 130, Duluth, Georgia. Good morning and welcome to Phelan and Myers 2 for 20. We have a year-end tax planning podcast this month. We've got a uh, CPA, a tax attorney, and the managing partner from Warren Averett with us. Her name is Kim Hartsock. So welcome, Ken. Kim, um, do you want to introduce the uh, the folks that you brought with you today to help us do some year-end tax planning? Sure. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I brought the experts in if you want to do some year-end planning from a tax perspective. So we're lucky to have with us Alexander Larson and Chris Wigington, and they are both um, experts in this field and will be able to give your listeners um, what they need to know as they head into the year-end and start planning for their tax tax returns. Perfect. Perfect. So let's talk about how do we save some money first on income taxes, hopefully, potentially capital gains. So we'll start with you, Alexander, uh, and then we will talk about the estate tax here in a few minutes, Chris. So, uh, Alexander, let's start kind of with the most basic tax planning as we go into year-end, capital gains and losses. How can we use potential losses and investments to offset some capital gains that we might have? Right, right. So excellent question. Um, Basically, um, any asset that you hold for investment purposes um, is, is treated to, you know, as a capital asset, right? So gains and losses uh, on the disposal of those assets usually recognized in your income. And the first question you really need to answer is how long did you have the asset for? Okay. So if you hold an asset for longer than a year, year and one day, it's treated as long term. Um, everything else is going to be treated as short term. It's very basic. Now. Long-term capital gains, per se, they also fall into different buckets depending on what type of an um, asset it is. Say, for example, um, listeners who are investing, say, in gold or ETFs backed by gold, precious metals and whatnot, those collectibles are generally taxed at 28%. Um, if you sell real estate, investment real estate, and um, a portion of that game represents depreciation taken in the prior years, it's generally recaptured. We call it a recapture, 25%. Um, everything else, stocks, bonds, securities, you know, um, capital assets are either taxed at 0 15 or 20%, depending on your total income. So recognizing gains and losses for the year, um, there is a complicated netting mechanism in place that eventually gets you to a point where you either have a net gain or a loss position for the year. And so depending on on which bucket your your gains fell in, like I mentioned before, you know, you would tax them at an appropriate rate. Now, if you have a loss position, this is the tricky part, right? And then the podcast kind of a theme. Um, You can only offset your ordinary income to the extent you have any from your W-2 wages or self-employment, maybe some partnership income, up to $3,000. And then that loss is carried forward. You cannot deduct more than that against your ordinary income. Okay, so so if we use an example, let's say I buy a piece of real estate. I'm mm-hmm. lucky I pay, 
I don't know, pick a pick a number, hundred thousand dollars. Sure. It, and I own it for six months. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I sell it for one hundred and fifty thousand right. dollars. I've got a fifty thousand dollar capital gain. Correct. You're saying because I owned it for less than a year and a day, mm-hmm. that fifty thousand dollar gain is taxed as ordinary income. Ordinary income at your okay. ordinary rates, whatever it is. Correct. Okay. okay. And had I held it for a year and a day or longer, mm-hmm. that'd be taxed as capital gain. And that capital gain rate is going to be dependent upon what my overall income is for the exactly. Year. Okay. That is correct. And there's one piece. Also, I just wanted to mention, um, it's kind of new and not a lot of people actually keep track of it, is that if you are kind of edging, you know, or become a higher net worth individual from the net investment income tax standpoint, you may owe an additional 3.8% on these kinds of capital gains as well. So you need to factor it into your tax planning, year-end tax planning, because you will have to pay that additional tax on it as well. It's a pretty complicated formula. You know, readers can look this up, read up, you know, things on the net, net investment income tax, but definitely keep that in mind. Okay. So go, going back to that example, I had a $50,000 short-term or long-term capital gain, depending on my holding period. Correct. Now, if I had a loss in a stock, for example. Mm-hmm. Let's say I bought a stock and I, I had a $20,000 loss in it. Mm-hmm. I can use that loss, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. against that $50,000 gain. Correct. So $50,000 gain, $20,000 loss, I have a net $30,000 gain. Correct. correct. Okay. So this time of year, we want to start looking for some tax losses maybe in some of the investments that we've got. Correct. That, no, totally. Statement. Absolutely. And then with stocks, you know, just talking about losses and, and kind of mentioning this piece of it as well. So if you have stocks or securities, and the definition here is really important, and you, for example, sell a stock or, you know, security, and then you replace it within 30 days, or you purchased an identical security prior to selling it within 30 days, it's called a wash sale loss, okay? Wash sale losses are not allowed, they're deferred, so what happens with that particular loss, in your example, let's pretend that that 20000 was a wash sale loss, you cannot offset the gain that you just realized on the sale of that property. Okay. okay. You will add it to the basis of what your new stock is, and then you're going to carry it forward until the day you sell it. So you, so you just need to be careful when you accumulate some of those losses going into the end of the year. Precisely. That you're waiting at least 30 days. If you want to buy the stock back, which you can do, you can you buy can. it back after 30 days, get to keep the loss, and you don't buy a similar stock. So for example, Correct. if you sold Wells Fargo for a loss, you couldn't necessarily turn around and buy Bank of America in lieu of that Wells Fargo and keep it as a keep it as a loss. Correct. Yeah, they have to be substantially identical and and usually uh, what we do in the trade is we go by the QSIP. So okay. you look it up, you you, you want to see, you know, exactly if they're identical or not. Obviously Wells Fargo and Bank of America they are not identical. Right? So the the wash sale So you could do that you in could. that example. Okay. Correct. I got gotcha. you. Can okay. I just also mention one more thing about wash sale losses and this is going to be very important from the tax planning standpoint. A lot of investors and individuals they look at their form 1099, right? And they say, "Okay, my wash sales have already been calculated. I don't need to even worry about this or think about this." Now, the 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 wash sale reporting by broker dealers was instituted i want to say like roughly 10 years ago and and broker dealers they they're not in the business of doing your tax planning for you the reason i'm saying this is the wash sale amount on your 1099 may be incorrect and you need to be very transparent and and forthcoming with your tax 
advisor and let them know, especially for the transactions that occurred between December 2nd and January 30th of the following year. And then if you buy and sell Wells Fargo multiple times a year, your wash sale number in your 1099 is likely incorrect. So can you depart from the 1099 reporting the answer is yes. If it's incorrect, you certainly should report correct amounts on, you know, for your, your gains and loss reporting purposes. But you have to be very careful and then just analyze your 1099. Do not just assume that the wash sale loss amount and the deferral that's reported on it is accurate. Chances are it's not. Because some of that wash sale information could show up on the following year's 1099. Precisely. Right. Okay. Yep. Okay. And then so, again, going back to that example, let's say we did not sell anything for a gain, mm -hmm. right? We had a twenty thousand dollar loss for Correct. the year. Mm -hmm. What do you do with that if you have no gains to use against those losses? How does that work? Right. So you, you're going to take a look at your ordinary income if you have enough. You know, we're talking about three thousand dollars in this case to offset it. So in this case, you're going to have a, a seventeen thousand um, dollar capital loss carry forward. Now, when you carry them forward, you have to be very careful about their character. If they were short term. Or long term, you have to make sure you keep track of that because you don't want to lose it next year because you're going to be going through the netting process yet again. Mm -hmm. And so depending on how long the, the net position was uh, that generated that particular loss, you want to make sure you do the right netting next year. So not only do you need to keep track of the amount, but also the character of the carry forward. Now, they're car carried forward indefinitely, so obviously, but $3,000, it's a very, very slow clip, you know, right. <laughs> to offset against your ordinary income, right? So if you have no gains, then it's $3,000, basically, ordinary income. ordinary income, and you could use that indefinitely. Correct. And it's been that way, I think, since the late 70s, if I'm not mistaken, which it's never been indexed up for inflation. It I mean, it seems not. like a pretty nominal amount. Right. Yeah. We, this is an easy kind of a, an online check. I haven't looked in a while, but I, I'm kind of thinking that it was probably even before the Reagan, you know, tax reform. I think you're right about that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so then if we move forward to uh, IRA withdrawals, mm -hmm. what, so the, there's, there's a little bit, you know, 72 to age 73 required minimum distributions used to be at age 70 and a half. And then they've kind of been ratcheting right. up to where they're currently at age 73. Right. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's going to wretch up to age 74. And then it's going to go right? up eventually. Right. And we have an unusual year this year. Right. This is perfect. So what is a required minimum distribution? Just to let the listeners know. Right. So you have an IRA account. You set the funds aside. You're in your lifetime. You know, you, you're being very diligent about saving for retirement. That's great. Now. Congress did not really want people to save money and then leave it, and then Chris is going to talk about estate tax planning in a minute, you know, to the future generations without taking a penny out of their savings. So the, the required minimum distribution regime was introduced. And the way it works is that when you reach a certain age, that year you should start taking these required minimum distributions. The way they're calculated is actually a very simple way of doing this. You look at every single IRA account that you have. You can have multiple. You know, you left your employers. You can have a self-directed IRA, you know, whatever that is. You look at the balance in that account on December 31st of the previous year. Mm -hmm. And then you consult a publication 590B. It's published by the IRS. There are certain tables um, in that publication that you can take a look at and, and determine what ratio, what percentage of that balance as of December 31st of the previous year, you must take this year to avoid an excise tax. If you do not take 
a required minimum distribution when you have to take it. Current tax is 50%. It's been just scaled down and uh, lower to 25% by Secure 2.0. And I think it's even going to go further down to 10%, depending on how quickly you remedy this mishap. And so, like you mentioned, absolutely right. It used to be 70 and a half. Now the new uh, rule is that if you're turning 73 in 2023, you, you should start um, taking those requirement minimum distributions now. Now, you can defer your very first RMD up to April 1st of the following year. Now, if you do that deferral, what happens is that you technically are going to get uh, taxed twice in the following year. One of them is going to be the RMD for the previous year, and the other one is going to be the RMD for that particular year, right? So um, from the tax planning standpoint, it, it's very important for the listeners to consider what their tax bracket is going to be. And if they are just on the cusp or you know, of recognizing this income, maybe this year their rate is pretty high. Next year, their rate is going to go down significantly, so it may make sense for them to defer and take that RMD uh, for the this year and next year. You know, next year, and then do it all. So, for example, if I'm if I'm terminating work mm-hmm. and my income is going to go down significantly next Correct. year, that first RMD it may make sense to do that first year's RMD before April one of the following year. Correct, and then do my. RMD for that year mm-hmm. at some point during the year as well. Correct. You okay. have to do it by, presumably be in a lower tax by rate. December 31st. And that's a very good point. By the way, if you have a 401k plan, you're still working, you're still employed. The current law says that you do not need to take required minimum distributions out of that plan while you're still employed. The day you re, uh, retire and if you are in the, you know, the, 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 the age 73 and above, you have to start taking the RMDs. Now, I did mention that this particular year has been very interesting, right, for us. So for the listeners who are in this age category, right, so we're talking 72 and 73, if you turned 72 last year, meaning 2022, your RMD has already started. You should have taken the first one by April of this year, and then by December 31st, you should pick up your 22 RMD in 23. If you turned 72 in 2023, current year right now, you know, we're, we're, we're still in 23, then your RMD will need to be taken by April 1st of 2025. Okay. Okay. Because we're jumping, we're increasing that age from 72 to 73, it's creating this kind of a wrinkle. So, you know, for some people who turned 72 last year, it's unfortunate. Yeah. You know, for people who are turning 72 this year, it's actually good news because they can still get a one-year deferral on that and take oh. benefit, you know, take a benefit from that. Yeah. Okay. So, so while we're talking about IRAs, yes. let's jump forward to, uh, charitable tax planning, yes. because I think IRAs are a great place to do it. So during your life, what can you do in terms of charitable planning as it relates to IRAs? Yeah, so we can we can definitely touch base on, you know, estate tax planning and, and, and gifting, you know, for that related, you know, to your IRA while you haven't reached a certain age. But once you reach 72, uh, 70 and a half, 70 and a half, right, that year, the moment you've turned 70 and a half, you can actually 
use a portion of your IRA distributions, designate them as a qualified charitable distribution, right? So you, you can pick up the phone, give a call to your trustee and let them know. And, and that qualified charitable distribution um, can, can go to any 501c3. It must be a publicly supported um, charity up to $100,000. And it counts towards your RMD limit. So if you do, if you've consulted the publication, you know what your RMD amount is. If you're giving more, you're charitably inclined, that's fabulous, that's really great. If, if, you, if, you, if it's a little bit less, then it's gonna reduce, obviously, the taxable portion to you. Your trustee will do the transfer. Mm -hmm. They will do that for you. They will report the gross distribution on the 1099-R. And the beauty of the reporting for an individual is that it does not increase your adjusted gross income. Mm -hmm. So for individuals for whom that adjusted gross income amount is important, especially for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid benefits, it is crucial uh, you know, to, to keep that in mind. It does not go to your Schedule A on your taxes. It actually is a reduction. So on the, your line 4B on the front page of your 1040, you're just going to write QCD for Qualified Charitable Donation. And it's not going to factor into your AGI. But that mechanism and that reporting is done by consulting and touching base with your trustee. Now, one point about the trustee, I mentioned 1099s with respect to wash sale reporting. Be careful about 1099Rs as well. There is no current mechanism for reporting these qualified charitable donations on the 1099R. Your financial institution may be... Uh, very helpful, and they can include an additional page with white page disclosures, disclosures, or add a line. But you need to let your tax professional know, because w what may happen is they may accidentally pick it up uh, as a gross distribution in your income and tax you on the full amount without knowing that a portion of it or all of it went to a charity. So be careful about those qualified charitable distributions and how they're being reported on your taxes. So that's a very good tax planning idea for year end. So the takeaway on that is make sure your CPA knows, hey, of this $30,000 distribution, 10 went to charity, 20 came to me. Correct. So you get the tax benefit for that 10 that went to charity. Precisely. Right? And then in terms of the dollar amount that goes to charity, so your required distribution starts at 73 currently. Correct. But what you're saying is is that you can give up to $100,000 starting at age 70 and a half Correct. out of your IRA and keeping it off your tax return. That's right. Okay. Perfect. 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 Thank you, Alexander. So let's let's move over to Chris and talk a little bit about estate tax planning. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having uh, me. Absolutely. So, you know, I've done some talks over the years on estate tax planning. I always the way I always started is there's three things that the IRS gives you as it relates to estate tax planning that you can do to mitigate that potential estate tax liability. Can you talk about those? Let's maybe start with the mo the most basic of those three, the unlimited marital deduction. Sure. Yeah. And and so the the marital deduction is in place so that spouses can transfer property no matter what the amount is back and forth between the two of them. Um, and that's whether it's during lifetime or at death, you know, we'll, we'll talk some in a minute about the unified credit. And the reason it's called unified is because our transfer tax system is set up in such a way that it's this total of lifetime gifts versus transfers at death. So, um, so yeah, regardless of whether it's during your life or not, um, you can transfer as much as you want, uh, to your spouse. Okay. So, so, and what, what is your spouse's name, Chris? Uh, Joy. 
Joy. Okay. So uh, you pass away, you can give everything to Joy 100% estate tax-free and vice versa. That, that's correct. Yes. Accurate statement. Yes. Okay. And then the gift tax exclusion. Can you talk a little bit about that? So if you and Joy wanted to start gifting some money to your four children, how does that work? And then I get a lot of questions about the gift tax. You know, what is this gift tax? Is it an actual tax? How does it work? What do I do? I mean, I get tons of questions on that. Sure. And it's kind of a misnomer, really. It, it really kind of is. I mean, because again, you're you've you've got this unified credit amount, which this year was twelve million nine hundred and twenty thousand dollars per person. That's going to go up next year to thirteen million six hundred and ten thousand. Because unlike the three thousand dollars that uh, that Alexander talked about earlier, this is indexed for inflation. So so there is a bump each year uh, based on inflation. But there's also the annual exclusion. Uh, for gifting as well. So again, if my wife and I wanted to start gifting to our kids, we could gift an amount up to $17,000 per child per year. And and it's not just children. You could gift it to, to anyone, to other relatives, to friends, whomever. Um, and, and that doesn't reduce your unified credit. So if we were to give $17,000 to each of our kids this year, our unified credit amount is still going to be the the twelve million nine twenty amount. Um, there are some exceptions to that too, above and beyond being able to give that seventeen thousand um, dollars. You can pay tuition directly to uh, a, an educational institution. So my my older two kids are in graduate school right now. So any amounts that we pay in terms of their tuition that doesn't count towards that seventeen thousand dollars. Same thing goes with medical expenses, but but in both of those instances, whoever is making the gift to pay those expenses needs to pay them directly to either the educational institution or the medical provider. Because if you pay it to your child and then they turn around and pay it, it counts against the seventeen thousand dollars. Okay, so so you enjoy seventeen thousand apiece, thirty four thousand dollars. You've got four children. You can give thirty four thousand dollars to each of them. If they had spouses, you give thirty four thousand dollars to the spouse. Children, you know, if correct, their children, your grandchildren, thirty four thousand, no tax. Now, what if one of your kids, instead of being able to give thirty four thousand, you gave them forty thousand? So you exceeded that thirty four thousand by six thousand dollars. Obviously, what is this thing called gift tax? How does that work? Well, it it it. it it creates this requirement where you are, you have to file a gift tax return to show. So my my total gifts in this case would be the forty thousand to the one child plus thirty four to each of the other kids. So you would show those total gifts on your return. You would show the annual exclusion that counts uh, that that you can credit towards those gifts, and then anything above that is going to reduce that unified credit amount. Because again, that unified credit, you look at it as it's kind of this declining balance that you have over your lifetime um, to to make gifts, to make transfers to others. And and so, yeah, it's just going to, that any excess over that annual exclusion amount is just going to decrease that that unified credit amount. That 12920 Correct. Okay. So, so between you and Joy collectively, twelve million nine hundred twenty thousand apiece, you can effectively give twenty six million dollars estate tax free to the next generation. Correct. Okay. So in this example, you exceeded the twelve million or the uh, thirty four thousand gifting limits by six thousand. So that six thousand would come off of your twelve million nine hundred twenty. So now instead of twelve million nine hundred twenty, you can give twelve million nine hundred fourteen thousand. Correct. Your debt. Okay. Yes. Okay. So. And then, so the unified credit, so back in the day, you know, years ago, you would set up 
spouses would set up their estate where they'd have half their net worth in each of their names. They'd set up, you know, what's called a marital trust in their wills. So if one of them passed away, it would go into this trust and that would be excluded from estate taxes. But in uh, 2010, right? Was that 2010? It was 2012. 2012. Yeah. Okay, that changed. So 11 years ago, that changed, and it's completely different now. Can you talk about that portability of this 12.9 million and sure. how that works? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, as you alluded to, you used to have to equalize assets, and you were taking advantage of the marital deduction because a lot of times you'd have one spouse that had the majority of the assets that weren't held jointly, and so you'd you'd try and equalize everything, but. But yeah, now we can we can port that unused exemption. So if you've got all the assets in the name of, of one spouse and the other spouse passes away first, you're not using any credit at the first spouse's death, but you can you still have to file uh, a form 706, the estate tax return, just like you would if it were a taxable estate. And you would elect portability on that return so that the 12920 would go to the surviving spouse to be combined combined with his or her uh, unified credit, uh, and then once once that spouse passes away, the surviving spouse passes away, um, they would be able to use both credits um, to to shelter. Those, now, those now is that just on jointly owned property? No, so, it's not. It, it's on. I mean, it's on anything. So it is yes. okay. So even if I passed away and I've got, let's say, my spouse and I have a $26 million estate, just coincidentally enough. 13 millions in my name, 13 millions in her name. I pass away. So when I file that 706, I'm not putting on there, hey, I've got $13 million in my name. I'm just essentially saying my 13 million goes to my spouse. She's got now got effectively $26 million upon her death. That's right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Now, that number... That thirteen million or twelve million nine hundred and twenty, I'm rounding up here. Sure. Um, that is going effect basically getting cut in half. What January one of twenty twenty six? That is correct. So when when the current act, the the two thousand seventeen uh, act was was enacted, it it basically doubled the unified credit at that point in time. So it went from five point six million or whatever it was to eleven point two million, I believe it was. Um, and and of course it's gone up been adjusted upwards for inflation since then. Uh, but of course, like a lot of tax acts, it sunsets uh, as of a particular date. So at, at the end of December of 2025, that act sunsets, and we go back to the prior amounts, again, still adjusted, adjusted for inflation. But yes, the, the long and short of it is that it essentially cuts it in half, unless there's new... Um, legislation that's enacted before that sunset date. But but as of right now, nothing has been done to to extend that act or to put uh, new legislation in place. So it will it will go back to the pre-2017 numbers. Okay. So I guess point being, if you have a net worth that exceeds $10 million, $12 million, and it doesn't look like that act is going to get extended sometime in 2025, maybe the second half of 2025, you might want to look to do some significant estate planning to to preserve that $13 million exemption you and your spouse have so it doesn't get cut to, what, $5.5 million? Uh, it, it'll probably be somewhere around $7 million because, About again, it's, in, it's, it's indexed for inflation, so it's, okay. it's still going to go up some from where it was back in 2017. But but yeah, and I, I guess on on behalf of all tax advisors, both attorneys and CPAs, 
don't wait until the very end of 2025 to do that because there's probably going to be a lot of other people trying to do that at the exact same time. So, so be proactive in terms of, of doing that. But, you know, the, the good thing about it is, is we do have this increased unified credit amount right now. And the IRS has, has already come out with some guidance that says that if you go ahead during your lifetime and use, let's say, let's just go to next year's numbers and say $13.6 million, I'm, you know, my wife and I, we've got an estate of over $26 million. We go ahead and use all of our credit now, and then it goes back down uh, at the end of 2025. The IRS has said that they won't claw that, that amount back, so you're not going to have to pay a gift tax at that point because you've exceeded what the then enacted um, unified credit amount is so. So again, it's it's kind of a use it or lose it proposition as we as we approach twenty twenty five. Now, going back to the portability discussion from earlier is if you are trying to make that decision about portability, um, we now have a five year period in which to file that return to elect portability. So. So we're in a kind of this sweet spot right now where there is this overlap between when the law may change so that if if someone has died recently and you're trying to make a decision about filing that portability return, you do have some time to wait and, and see. But what we always counsel people to do is that to the extent that you think you might file a portability return, go ahead and collect all of your bank statements and you know, any appraisals, any, any type of information that we might have to use to file that 706, go ahead and get it done now so that you're not, you know, four or five years from now trying to go back and say, okay, what was the date of death value of, of all of these assets? Because when you do file a portability return, you have to file it the same way that you would if you had a taxable estate, meaning that you've got to disclose all of your assets and you've got to have backup for for all that information that's that's on the return so i I got you i got you um okay and the last thing i wanted to hit on um before we wrap up step up in basis so how does that work and how can you use it to your advantage um either if you want to leave money to a surviving spouse or if you want to leave money to you know children down the road sure yeah and and so the, the way the step up in basis works is that at if you own an asset at the date of your death, and, and let's let's say, going back to your example earlier, you paid $100,000 for a piece of property, and now it's, it's, it's appreciated to where it's you know, worth $200,000. If you're holding that property still at your death, uh, your beneficiaries are going to take a fair market value basis as of the date of your death. So in this example, $200,000, meaning that if they turned around and sold it immediately, there would be no capital gains tax like we were talking about earlier. It would just be, you'd be selling it for what it was worth and your basis is equal to what it is worth. Conversely, if you make a transfer during your life, you know, going back to our gifting conversation, if we're, if I'm to gift property to a child of mine or, or someone else, or I'm going to put it in trust for their benefit, you've got a carryover basis in that instance. So rather than the cost basis that most people are used to, where if I buy a house and I'm paying $100,000 for it, my basis is $100,000. If I don't pay anything for it and somebody has just gifted it to me, it's just going to be whatever the basis was in the hands of that individual that's gifting it. So so again, even though we've got this unified credit that covers both lifetime and 
death transfers, um, the way we handle basis in those situations is different. Um, and, and so, again, if you've got appreciated assets, you know, because people come to us all the time and say, you know, well, mom, she's lived in this house and, you know, she's, she doesn't really need to stay there anymore and we're thinking about selling it, but she's in really bad shape, so we're going to move her to a, a skilled nursing facility or something like that, so we want to go ahead and sell it. And, you know, my advice sometimes is, depending upon the amount of the appreciation, and if you're not needing those funds to, to pay for her care, uh, that it may be best to wait um, and, and wait until after she passes and then sell it because you've gotten that step up in basis and you've reduced the overall tax burden so that there's more that, that goes to the beneficiaries in that example. Um, so, so again, that's, and particularly as we approach tw the end of 2025, and if you're talking about making transfers to use up your unified credit before it goes back down, you want to be cognizant of whether you're transferring low basis or high basis assets, because if you're funding all these trusts with low basis assets, you're not going to be able to take advantage of that step up in basis potentially in the future. Because the recipient of that gift is assuming your basis, it's not getting stepped up. That's I correct. You. I got you. So a lot, a lot of potential planning needs the second half, or or at some point during twenty twenty five, depending on um, yeah, depending on what what it looks like the estate tax is going to do. Right. So guys, that was awesome. Thank you, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Alexander. Thank you, Kim. Kim, anything you want to add? Why why do people charge? Why does my CPA charge so much for my tax return? Can you answer that question? No, I'm kidding. Well, okay. <laughs> let's 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 have a conversation about the uh, shortage of CPAs right now. <laughs> very true. Very true. Very true. Guys, that was awesome. Supply and thank demand. You. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. The information provided here is taken from sources which we believe to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of such information is not guaranteed by us. This is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of individual investors. Employees of Janie Montgomery Scott LLC or its affiliates may at times release written or oral commentary, technical analysis, or trading strategies that differ from the opinions expressed here. Investing may involve market risk, including possible loss of principal. Janie Montgomery Scott LLC, its affiliates, and its employees are not in the business of providing tax, regulatory, accounting, or legal advice. Any tax-related statements are not intended for and cannot be used or relied upon by any such taxpayer for the purpose of avoiding tax penalties. Any such taxpayer should seek advice based on the taxpayer's particular circumstances from an independent tax advisor. For more information about Janney, please see Janney's Relationship Summary Form CRS on www.janney.com backslash CRS, which details all material facts about the scope and terms of our relationship with you and any potential conflicts of interest.